We can dismiss our younger children uh, to Children's Church. The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline that says the tears of Christ on it. We're in John chapter 11, verses 28 through 37. Listen carefully to God's word. It starts with Martha. It says, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word again this morning, and it is a difficult passage and a difficult topic of death and sorrow, not one that we look forward to, but you teach us here, and we pray that we would learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It was somewhat ironic uh, this morning, Joanne and I are celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary this week, and uh, yeah, that's a good thing. Anybody hangs out with me 25 years is really, really special. Um, but anyway, she said this morning, she said, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary and you're preaching on grieving. like, well, that's what came next, you know? It's, so anyway, that's what we're going to talk about, and that's a hard subject. And uh, it's one of these subjects that if you're kind of skipping around, you would always skip this one, because it's just, it's not one of the fun ones. But it is one of the most important ones. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now I want to talk about Joseph Bailey as a Christian writer. And Joseph Bailey knew about death. It was a subject in which he was well tutored. His teachers were a newborn son who died after surgery, a five-year-old son who died from leukemia, 
and an 18-year-old son who died after a sledding accident. And each imparted its own painful lesson in the stark reality of death. It's a reality that Joseph Bailey confronts us with in the opening of his book, which is called The Last Thing We Talk About. Listen to what he says. I'm just going to read from the beginning of his book. It says, The hearse began its grievous uh, journey many thousand years ago as a litter made of saplings, litter, sled, wagon, Cadillac. The conveyance has changed, but the corpse it carries is the same. Birth and death enclose man in a sort of parentheses of the present, and the brackets at the beginning and end of life are still impenetrable. This frustrates us, especially in a time of scientific breakthrough and exploding knowledge, that we should be able to break out of Earth's environment and yet be stopped cold by death's unyielding mystery. Electroencephalogram may replace a mirror held before the mouth. Autopsies become more sophisticated. Cosmetic embalming has taken the place of pennies on the eyelids and canvas shrouds but death continues to confront us with its blank wall. Everything changes. Death is changeless. Dairy farmer and sales executive live in death's shadow with Nobel Prize winner and prostitute, mother, infant, teen, old man. The hearse stands waiting for the surgeon who transplants a heart as well as for the hopeful recipient, for the funeral director as well as for the corpse he manipulates. Death spares None. And as true as that is, we still don't like to deal with it. We find different ways to cope with this harsh reality. We have solemn services with graceful hymns and fragrant flowers, and all of which are good. But we use these good things to try to make death more beautiful than it is. But Joe Bailey says that doesn't work either. He says, death destroys beauty. When the automobile's victim is human, when a child, not a bird, or a man, not a mole, is lying dead on the road, we see the true nature of death. Beauty destroyed by pills, achievement terminated by a seven-story fall, youth's glory ended by an improvised explosive device, women and children blown apart by suicide bombers. These are the faces of death. Coronary cancer, stroke, infection. Death comes even naturally in a multitude of ways to every human condition and every age. Shall we deny death and try to make it beautiful? We cannot beautify death. We may live with it, we may accept it, but we cannot change its foul nature. And if you think about it, for hundreds of years now, the biggest, most overly built building in virtually every town and city in the Western world, only excluding our largest of cities, was a church. In most towns, uh, at least in America, it was a tall, steepled, white clapboard church. And in most cities, it was a tall, steepled stone cathedral. But that hasn't been true, at least in this country, since the end of World War II. Now, in most towns and cities, again, excluding our largest of cities, the biggest, most overly built building in town is the hospital. And those hospitals have grown from a small-town hospital into a regional medical center into a multi-hospital health service center. And one of the reasons we keep building them bigger and better is they serve as our biggest hedge against our greatest fear. 
namely death. And while we have yet to find a cure for the dying, we still believe that top-notch health care is the best shot we have. And so we put an enormous amount of resources into it. But something more than health care is pulling our strings. When both General Motors and Ford spend more money on employee health care than they do on steel, and the whole world's become a hospital. It's because death is pulling our strings. If you think about it, we build bombs in hospitals for much the same reason. To defend ourselves. Mostly against dying. And anytime we get together to do something good for the world, the main agenda, the only projects we undertake, the thing we pour most of our resources into is preventing death. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, doctors have gotten a lot of my money. My guess is they're going to get more. But what I am saying is we're getting jerked around by death. And that's true on a personal level as well. You can jog, lower your cholesterol, watch your health, take your meds, reduce your caloric intake, and end up the healthiest person who ever died. Because despite everything we do, the death rate remains exactly what it's always been, a flat 100%. We hate that. We hate that. I mean, they were far more understanding of death back in Jesus' day. They were surrounded by it, and for the most part came to accept it as part of life. There were no hospitals. For all practical purposes, there were no doctors. There was very little medicine and no life-saving technology. They never had a discussion about living wills, and there were no plugs to pull. People got sick, and they died. It was just how it was. And we hate that too. The amazing thing is, so did Jesus. He won't let dying or the fear of it control his schedule. Jesus will not be jerked around by death. And nobody around him can quite understand that. Let's turn to our passage this morning in John 11. Because first thing we see here is Mary, and she's bewildered. She's bewildered. Starting in verse 28. When she had said this, Martha, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now last week we learned that no matter how bad the situation, Jesus is in control. Jesus met Martha where she's at, and Martha challenged him, with these same words. She met him on the road and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he refused to debate her. Instead, he gave her a challenge to faith. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you 
believe this. And Martha responded to Jesus in faith when she said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. One of the great confessions of faith in the Bible. And having given that confession of faith, Martha goes and gets her sister. And Mary gets the word that she is waiting for, that Jesus is asking for her. That Jesus wants to see her. And if Martha is the take charge type, Mary is the emotional one in the family. She's used to caring for others. She's used to sharing her feelings with others out of her love for them. Every time we see Mary in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. It's not a bad thing to be remembered for. And now with Lazarus' death, her older brother, the one who was her provider, her world shattered. She's an emotional wreck. And if Martha wanted to know that Jesus was still in control, then Mary wants to know if Jesus still cares. She reaches Jesus and falls at his feet. Again, verse 32. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus is a rock, her emotional support, and she can't handle the pain. Lord, why weren't you here? Why didn't you heal your friend? He's dead, I'm hurt, and I don't understand. And Mary needs to grieve, and she needs Jesus to show her how. Now Mary reminds me of another story that I heard and then read many years ago. And I'm going to spend some time on it because I don't want anyone to ever say that it's the last thing we talk about. It's a story about grieving and sorrow management. It's a story that reminds us that we have some losses headed our way, so much so that we may need to enroll in a course on sorrow management. But we better be careful because there's more than one course out there. It's a story that shows the differences between the way the world teaches us to manage our sorrow and the way God teaches us to manage our sorrow. And it'll give us a taste of both ways to manage sorrow. And I'm going to share both ways with you, and I'm going to let you choose which is the better way. You get to make the call this morning. The story comes from John James and Frank Cherry uh, and their book on grief recovery. And it's used to illustrate how the world teaches us about sorrow. It's a story about a boy, and his name is Johnny. And when Johnny was five years old, his dog died. And he was rocked and stunned and upset and crying. His dog was his constant companion, slept at the foot of his bed, but now he's gone, and little Johnny's a basket case. His parents don't know what to do. Johnny's crying uncontrollably. So finally his dad sort of stammers out, Johnny, don't feel bad. We'll get you a new dog on Saturday. And in that one sentence, Johnny hears the first two steps in the world's approach to sorrow. Step one, bury your feelings. Don't feel bad. Come on, mop up, don't cry, pull it together, act normal, be brave. And then step two, replace your losses. We'll get you a new dog Saturday. And once you have the new dog, you won't even think about the old dog anymore. When Johnny was 10, his bike got stolen. And again, he's upset and crying. And again, Dad was there with the answer. Johnny, shake it off. 
We'll get you a new one soon. Step one, bury your feelings, shake it off. Step two, replace your losses. We'll get you a new one soon. It just reinforces Johnny's sorrow management skills. Johnny's 16, he's in high school. He has his first girlfriend. The sun shone every day. He really liked her. But then three months later, all of a sudden, she unceremoniously dumps him, and a curtain covers the sun. And Johnny's heart is broken. This time, it's a big hurt. It's a whole lot more hurt than losing a puppy or a 10-speed. This is a person. And this time, it's mom who comes to the rescue. Don't worry, son. There's more fish in the sea. Step one, bury your feelings. Don't worry. Step two, replace your losses. There's more fish in the sea. Johnny has steps one and two down pat. He will use them for the rest of his life. Later on, Johnny's still in high school. His grandpa dies. No one close told them. They handed him a note in math class. And he tried, but he couldn't keep from crying. So they sent him to the office. But the folks in the office were uncomfortable with him sitting there crying. Uh, so they called his folks, told him to come get him, and they sent him off to an empty office to grieve alone and to wait for his folks. When he finally got to go home, he saw his mom uh, crying. His dad picked him up, brought him home. His mom's crying in the living room. And he starts to go over to her, give her a hug, but his dad says, don't bother her now. She just needs to be alone. We'll talk to her later. Step three becomes clear, grieve alone. So Johnny tries to bury his feelings. He replaces this profound sense of loss with frenetic activity, constant athletic involvement in high school, but Johnny can't sleep. See, he's lonely. He remembers all the good times he had with his grandpa. He was really close with his grandpa, and there were fishing trips and Christmas and birthdays. He tried to talk to his dad about it, but dad said, Johnny, just give it time. Give it time. Step four, give it time. Time heals everything in and of itself, just sort of mystically. You've been keeping track? Bury your feelings, replace your losses, grieve alone, give it time. But Johnny's still upset. He can't get his grandfather out of his mind. And you see, as he thought about it, he realized he never thanked his grandfather for the fishing trips and the fishing tips and the sack lunches and the late afternoon swims when the fish weren't biting. He left a lot of things unsaid, even the big one. He never got to say, I love you, Grandpa. He didn't get to say it. So what can he do about it now? I guess I'll just have to live with regret. And that's step five, live with regret. There's nothing you can do about it. So Johnny's living with pain. He's living with trauma. He does a little elementary relational math. He figures out close relationships wind up hurting. Close relationships expose me to the possibility of deep pain. And so he get, concludes, don't get so close that absence hurts. There's a good preparation for marriage. Don't get so close that absence hurts. Step six, put the wall up, never trust again. That's the world's approach to sorrow management. Bury your feelings, replace your losses, grieve alone, time heals, live with regret, never trust again. How does that sound? For some of you, I imagine it sounds somewhat familiar. It's been the world's approach to grief and sorrow for years. 
And most of us had some or all of those elements in our own approach to sorrow. And how effective has that been? Are sorrow and loss really getting addressed here? Is anything getting resolved? Is grief recovery really happening? Are there a lot of people walking around with open wounds on the inside? How many grief-laden and uh, sorrow-filled people do you know who wind up in the ditch? Maybe it's alcoholism or workaholism or a string of broken relationships or compulsive eating or compulsive spending, all driven by an inability to recover and rebuild their lives after a devastating loss. The message is loud and clear. Grieve right, and you can live right afterwards. Grieve wrong, and all bets are off. As doing this, I thought about a pitcher in baseball. He pitched in the American League a number of years ago for the Oakland A's. They were about to win the American League championship, and they called him in. His name was Donnie Moore. To close the game out, he didn't close the game out. He lost the game. Blew the save, lost the game. One out away from a championship, he lost the game. And he could never shake it. And it tormented him. And finally, a few years later, he just went home and he shot his wife and he shot himself because of one bad pitch. Another pitcher, I compare that to, is Dave Dravecki. Some of you may be familiar with his story. He's a believer, and he was a pitcher. He broke his arm, and so they fixed it. And he went out, and he broke it again, and he broke it so badly they had to amputate it. And he lost his career and his pitching arm and his shoulder. But he's energetically rebuilding his life. I think he's just written his third book on How does one get going when they take away everything you've known? So if you look at Donnie Moore and Dave Dravecki, you tell me how important is sorrow management? We've already had a taste of the world's approach to sorrow management. Let me give you a taste of God's approach. For that, we have to go back to our text, back to John 11 and back to Mary, who's still there waiting. And here we see the power of tears. The power of tears. I don't think there's any blanks in there this week, so you're all getting over. Um, you can go ahead and underline it and pretend you wrote it in. The, uh, but we start verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Jesus doesn't give Mary the world's approach to sorrow. She comes up and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. He didn't say, come on, Mary, suck it up. You know? You have no idea what I'm about to do. It's going to be really cool. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't have to sorrow. That's not what he does. The world says, bury your feelings. Jesus says, feel your feelings. Really feel them down to the deepest extent that you can and express them. Don't stuff them, deny them, discount them, bury them, 
or put on a false image of bravery. You know, we see Jesus goes with Mary to Lazarus' tomb, and standing outside the tomb, he sees Mary weeping, and all her friends have come, and they're weeping, and the scripture says, Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it's very possibly the deepest verse in the Bible. Mary needed to know if Jesus cared. And he didn't tell her that I cared. He didn't, he didn't tell her, oh, sure, Mary, I care, because you're going to see. He showed her that he cared. Those two little words, Jesus wept, speak volumes about God's approach to sorrow management. We can learn a lot by watching Jesus weep. See, Jesus weeping gives us permission to weep. It's been said that weeping is the language of the soul, the cleansing river of emotional release. And God says, let the rivers flow. It's okay to cry. You know, I remember when I was going into the army and before I left, I was given a book by some friends. The book is by a man named Steve Whalen. And uh, he was a... For <clears throat> Let me see if this works. <clears throat> Just throat caught. It'll come back in a minute. <clears throat> Steve Whalen is a fourth generation firefighter in New York City until he had a disabling injury in the line of duty. And he wrote a book about being a firefighter, about a firehouse in Brooklyn, New York. And this goes back mid-80s, I guess, early 80s. And the book was about Ladder Company 105. And it's about all his experiences as a firefighter and how they fought all these fires in New York City and how all the guys in the firehouse got really close to each other. And then one year, right before Christmas, had a big fire. It was a tenement house. So the whole ladder company is out there and they're fighting the fire and everybody is there. All hands on deck. Multiple alarm fire. Several other companies are there. But they were the first ones. So they're, they're the lead company fighting the fire. And there's guys in the building and outside the building and all of a sudden the walls caved in and the building collapsed. Six firefighters died. And the picture on the front page of the next morning's paper shows this whole line of firefighters sitting on the sidewalk in front of this building that had collapsed. And they're all crying. And the headline in the paper and the title of Steve's book is It Takes a Man to Cry. Just this week, nine firefighters lost their lives in a furniture store fire in Charleston, South Carolina. Charleston's still in mourning today. I don't know if you saw the front page of yesterday's paper. There was just a line of caskets draped with flags out on the street. 
getting ready to go into the church. And I imagine there were a lot of tears among all the hundreds of firefighters that were there yesterday. I wonder how many of you, men and women, have felt free to grieve your losses. Not just deaths, but other losses as well. Childhood traumas, parts of your past, health losses, relationship losses, financial losses, church losses. God says to you this morning, look how my son Jesus responds to devastating loss. He wept. Go ahead and cry. Step two, the world says replace your losses. Turn the page, fix it quick, move on. Don't hang out in sad places. Scripture teaches exactly the opposite. God's step two is to review your losses. Hang out in that sad place long enough to allow the full effect of that loss to settle into your soul. Reduce the pace of your life long enough to deal with the loss. You have literally got to stand in your pain. Don't move on until you've talked about it and thought about it and wrote about it and prayed about it. Most people want to run from their loss and fill their life with frenetic activity so they don't have to deal with it. But you can never get away from it. You can't leave a loss behind until you face it. And Jesus goes up to that tomb and he faces down sin and death and he wept. And the Bible doesn't tell us what he wept for, what triggered it. I'm sure he wept over Mary and Martha's sorrow. I'm sure he wept over all the people's unbelief. And I'm sure he wept over Lazarus. I mean, Lazarus is in heaven now, and Jesus is calling him back out of paradise, back to this terrible earth, only for him to die again. We think it's going to be a great miracle, not for Lazarus. Think how he felt. Everything's perfect. I'm in heaven. Everything's what? Come here. The only thing it says is Jesus wept. It doesn't tell us why. I'm sure it was for those things. It may be many other things as well. But over sin and sorrow and death and what it does to people. And Jesus wept. Review your losses. Jesus did. The world says grieve alone. And again, God says exactly the opposite. God's step three is grieve together. Grieve in community. You know, we don't do private baptisms. We don't do private funerals. Both of those are part of worship services. Same with marriages. Marriage is not just a ceremony. It's part of a worship service. And the idea is to bring the community together in all of those major events. Jesus goes to the tomb with Mary and Martha and their friends. And Mary cries, and the friends cry, and Jesus cries, and they grieve together. One writer tells a story about when his father died, and he was at the funeral, and a very close friend of his came. They're already at the gravesite when the friend arrived. He had driven 180 miles to get there. 
And they embraced and cried together, and it was over, and he left. And he said he never said a word. But he said, I will remember that forever. He just came to be with me. Grief together. The world says, bury your feelings, replace your losses, grieve alone. God says, feel your feelings, review your losses, grieve together. The world says, step, step four is time heals. God's step four is only the Holy Spirit heals. You know, 50 years ago, industries all over this country buried toxic waste. Companies thought time would take care of it. And now it leaks into our water and contaminates our crops and kills our animals and poisons our kids. And buried grief does the same thing. Buried grief hangs around and time doesn't get rid of it. It leaks into our lives. It contaminates our relationships. It kills our spirit. And many people, maybe you, are walking around hurt and lonely and there's this river of sadness running underneath the surface. And they don't know why. They've never dealt with their losses. Time, in and of itself, doesn't heal a thing. God says, feel it, review it, grieve over it, and then give it to me. Only my Holy Spirit can heal you and make you whole again. 17 years ago, Joanne and I suffered through a fairly traumatic miscarriage. We lost the baby. I almost lost Joanne. And so we decided to have a memorial service. And my mom came to it. And after the service, she came up to me and said, you know, I had a miscarriage 35 years ago, but we weren't allowed to grieve about it back then. And I remembered that child every day of my life. But it was not until today that I was finally able to grieve. Time, in and of itself, doesn't heal a thing. You need to turn your losses over to the Holy Spirit. The world says step five is live with regret. There's nothing you can do about it. God says it is never too late to express your regrets. You know, when I was in college, I was involved with a campus ministry, and a leader from another school used to come over and lead our group occasionally, and he told us the story of his one of his very best friends. And he told about this story, and this man was pretty close with his dad, but they had a huge fight, really big uh, fight. He was a young adult, and his dad was getting ready to retire, and you know, and they, they had a fight one morning, and his dad said, hey, will you give me a ride to work? And he said, yeah, sure, Dad. And uh, they argue all the way to the plant. And he pulls out up in front of the plant, and they arrive. His dad says, thanks. And he says, yeah. And he slams the door. He just puts the car in gear, drives off, never looks back. They didn't see his dad drop dead of a heart attack, fall over right on the sidewalk, right where he let him off. He never looked in the rearview mirror because he was just too mad. He knew CPR. Ten years later, he still can't sleep. Finally, he goes to a Christian counselor, and the guy took him to Romans 12, 18, which says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And then he went to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You can finish unfinished business. You can make peace on your side of the equation. 
the man wound up writing a 30-page uh, final letter to his dad, expressing all those things he wanted to say, but never got a chance to say. And he called his family together, his mom and his brothers and his sisters, and he read them the letter. And then he said, you know, I've been carrying a backpack of regret for a decade. The backpack's finally been cut off. God says, you don't have to live with regret. You can reconcile your side of the relationship. You can say what needs to be said before God and a few friends. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. God is big enough to handle it. He cares. Step six, when you've made someone or something other than God your treasure, and you've made it or them or him or her the center of your life, and that treasure gets ripped out of your life, when your reason for living goes up in smoke or gets lowered into a six-foot hole, the world says, wall up, never trust again. God says, make Christ your treasure. Do yourself a favor, admit your need for Christ, his love, his acceptance, his forgiveness, his grace, make him the center of your life. Jesus said at the end of Matthew, be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ says you might lose your treasure, you might lose your shelter, you might lose your health, your fortune, your spouse, your kids, your mom, your dad, but you will never lose me. Never, never Never, I am not vulnerable, I am secure, and I will be with you always. Mary and Martha knew their treasure, and they went to Christ. And when Christ is the center of your life, he changes your perspective. When the losses come, and I promise you they will come, you'll still have your treasure. The center of your life will still be there. And after a time of feeling your feelings and reviewing your losses and grieving together and allowing the Holy Spirit to heal and reconciling your regrets, you'll finally be able to trust again because you're trusting Christ. He's the center of your life. You'll be able to go on. You'll be able to make new relationships. You'll be able to enjoy life again. So there you have it, two approaches to sorrow management. Twelve summers ago, I was faced with the task of burying the 10-year-old son of very good friends. His name was Jesse. Full of life, never stopped moving. I remember speaking at his funeral. I told the story of one time he crawled down between all the pews in our church, all the way down to the front. And I could see his parents looking frantically for him. They were sitting towards the back. And all of a sudden, I noticed down in the corner of the church, there's Jesse lying on the floor. And he kind of waves to me. And, and I kind of leaned over around the pulpit and waved back. And actually, he's just kind of kid he was. He was just all around. But he died. So what do you say? What do you do? It's not an easy task, not even for a preacher. And it was gut-wrenching. And when that phone call came, I thought I'd been kicked in the stomach. We had a long ride home because we were actually away on vacation when it happened. The whole time I thought, what am I going to tell them? What would you have me tell them about sorrow? The world's way or God's way? Let's go back to Johnny when he was five, where we started. One day his dad came home from work and he was tired, been a long day, but Johnny wants to play. Hey, dad, let's play. Last thing dad wants to do. 
but he gets an idea. There's a copy of Time magazine there, and on the cover of Time is a picture of the world. So he tears it up, cuts it up to make a jigsaw puzzle. He gives it to Johnny, says, put that together, and he goes to relax. Five minutes later, Johnny's back. So I said, how'd you do that so fast? It's says, easy, Dad. See, there's a picture on the back of a person. And when you put the person together, the world comes together. And so it is in life. When you put the person back together, the world comes together. Mary and Martha needed to be put back together. They came to Christ. They said the exact same words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha said him to his face, and he showed her that he was still in control. Mary cried them at his feet, and he showed her that he still cared. God is in control even if we're out of control. And God cares even when we no longer can. And so Johnny's dad finally goes out to play with his little boy, and he throws him in the air, and he catches him just before he hits the ground. And like little boys do, he's relaxing, he's having a great time, even though he's way up in the air, totally out of control, but he's shouting, do it again, do it again. You ask the father why Johnny is so relaxed, even when he's out of control, and his father will tell you, it's simple. We have a history together. We've played this game many times before, and I've never dropped him. And this morning, God the Father is telling you, we have been here many times before, and I have never dropped you, and I never will. And when life is spinning out of control, and when the phone rings the wrong way and kicks you in the stomach, when the doctor walks into your room with an ashen look on his face, when the boss says, I'm sorry, I tried, when the person you love says, it's been real, I'm out of here, when the sorrow overwhelms you, what are you going to do? The stakes are pretty high. Are you going to follow the world's way in sorrow management, or are you going to follow God's way? Think about that. We need to pray.